This episode is sponsored by Microsoft. Watch Microsoft Chief Sustainability Officer Melanie Nakagawa and other sustainability leaders exploring the latest Microsoft Cloud for sustainability innovations that can help companies prepare for reporting regulations. Learn more at aka.ms forward slash sustainable future live. And this episode is sponsored by Ecolab. When the world talks about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we don't talk about water. What if water could help you meet your climate goals? Learn more about the transformative power of water at ecolab.com forward slash water. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, paying coal plants to shut down, Amsterdam's circular startups, how to get hired in a Jekyll and Hyde sustainability job market, and the coming business insurance apocalypse. It's a matter of policy this week on 350. It's June 23rd, 2023. Welcome to summer and to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Heather Clancy is off this week. So joining me from Brooklyn, New York is Green Biz's SVP, Senior Vice President for Sustainability, Dylan Siegler. Hello, Dylan. Hey, Joel. Good to see you. Uh, I going to see you again uh, uh, next week uh, up in Boston for GreenFin 23. Um you're looking forward to that? It's going to be, uh, I, I was going to say a laugh a minute, probably not a laugh a minute, it's a pretty buttoned up crew. Um, yeah, actually yeah. it is. <laughs> um, I am, yeah, I am going to be hosting along with Sarah Golden, the sidebar, which is a fun addition to our main stage and um, hosting our live stream. So that's pretty exciting for me. Um, I also get to interview a couple of folks on the main stage, including the treasurer of the state of Vermont. And um, yeah, there's so there's a lot going on for me. I'll be running around like a crazy person. Um, and I, I am going to, one of the things I'm looking forward to is during the breakout session that I'm moderating on Wednesday, I'll be doing some sustainability and ESG disclosure trivia. So don't miss that. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You're going to be, explain that a little bit. You're going to be, is it like a trivia contest so, or you're just um, going to be spewing rando comments and thoughts? <laughs> we will be, we will be doing some trivia as a group where um, I will be asking such questions as um, what letters of the alphabet do not appear in any of the names of global disclosure frameworks? Okay, I would imagine that Z, well, Z uh, may be one of them, but I don't know. It'll I'll, be multiple choices. <laughs> oh, you're multiple choice. Not you're not just picking letters out no. of the twenty six. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Is Z one of them? I just have to know. Do you know? Is that? Well, it depends on whether you consider G fans to be part oh, of. The, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I would, it's not I would... a framework, but it is. You know, it is part of the 
the uh, the community. So I am not in, I'm not including Z as one of my four answers. Okay, okay. Well, uh, no, I, I so 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 this is going to sh show up on the live stream. This trivia? Thing? No, this, unfortunately, this will, you'll need to be there for this. So I do suggest that if, if you have, if listeners to the 350 podcast have, uh, have a dog in this race, definitely show up for my breakout on Wednesday, new opportunities in a new era of disclosure is what it's called. Okay. And uh, speaking of a live stream, we will be, uh, streaming live the uh, keynote sessions and the sidebar interviews uh, hosted by uh, by Dylan and Sarah Golden on June 26th, 27th. It's free. Uh, just no registrations required. It's going to be on greenbiz.com and on our LinkedIn page, uh, greenbiz uh, group LinkedIn page. So uh, check that out. Uh, it'll be uh, on, uh, well, Friday, oh, excuse me, Monday and Tuesday morning next week, uh, East Coast time. And I um, uh, hope, hope you can all check in if you're not going to be in Boston. Yeah. Um, so, Joel, I know you'll be joining us next week in Boston, but what happens for you after Greenfin 23? I know there are some big changes afoot in your world. Funny you should ask. Yes. Um, so... I am going to, about to do something that I have not done in my 48 years as a working professional, um, which is I'm going to take a, a mini sabbatical for July and August. I'm just going to lay low and do see what happens. I'm calling it my mental rewilding. You know, going to sort of let's see what uh, when when something lies fallow, what uh, nature takes over and and does its thing, does what <laughs> comes naturally. Um, but in the process, this is sort of the bigger news, is that at the as of the end of this week, I'm handing off the newsletter to uh, a crew that's still evolving. It'll involve, I think, you, Dylan, and probably John Davies and maybe some others. Um, and this podcast to uh, my longtime co-host, Heather Clancy, not just for the summer, but for good. Um, so uh, I'm not going away. I'm definitely absolutely 100% not retiring, uh, but I am going to mix it up a little bit. There's a, a step back from the weekly writing and doing some deeper dive, longer form, maybe multi-part um, uh, editorial pieces and uh, continue some of the many of the other roles that I have in the company. So yeah, just uh, it's a it's time for a change, uh, time to mix it up and uh, a little scary. Um, but well, it's a little scary for for us too, Joel. <laughs> um, we will try our best to step into a, a pretty big vacuum that you're gonna you're gonna be leaving. Um, I am lucky myself to continue to have access to you, um, so uh, I know that this audience will will be interested to read some of that long form writing that you'll get uh, that you'll have more of a an opportunity to write and think about and. I'm personally really interested to see what crops up between the cracks in your sidewalk while you're on sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks. Um, and, and and this is really a pivotal moment for the company too, and a good time for me to to uh, you know, step back from my day to day activities and focus a little bit more strategically. Um, and and going back to committing more journalism, we've just got this amazing crew now, almost eighty people, and growing, and uh, and some really terrific talents. Uh, so. 
it's a good time for me to, to, to think a little bit differently. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, I think we'll talk a little bit, definitely talk about that more, Heather and me, in our, our last show together next week. And this podcast uh, uh, is, is going to, uh, well, I think it's going to take the summer off, actually. Uh, I, I've just been told, but we'll talk about that next week and see what's going on. But uh, that's enough about the future. Let's go back to the Week in Review. So let's start with something, Dylan, that's, uh, I think, near and dear to both of us, which is the sustainability job market, a piece written by our good friend Mike Hauer, uh, founder and principal uh, of something now called Hauer Impact, his newish company focusing, uh, among other things, on jobs and careers. And he, he wrote a good piece sort of on, on some of the, of the uh, five key practical steps you should take. It specifically talked about people who have been laid off and laid off not just from a sustainability job, but from any job, but looking to get into sustainability. But uh, I'm curious what you think, Dylan, that this seems like it's applicable for pretty much anybody in the sustainability job market. I would agree. I don't think you have to have been laid off to to take Mike's advice here. And Mike, if you know him, he, he's a, I know Joel, you do. He's a master networker. He's a master connector. It comes very naturally to him. And so it wasn't surprising to me to see that he recommends essentially really staying engaged in the sustainability community, um, whether you've been laid off or not. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you want to be a part of this community and continue to be employed in it, it helps to know the people in it and to have them know you and what you're good at, what you um, are interested in, what you bring. Um, I also think that it, you know, he brings up that when you network, you should be building connections, not just contacts. It's not about the number of people that you know, but the the quality of those relationships. And um, I think that's doubly important in this economy. I've been referring to our sustainability jobs economy as cloudy with a chance of meatballs hmm. after the <laughs> 1978 children's book of the same name, um, because it's just oh, a- yeah, What does that mean? It's a weird environment and one that really takes a lot of flexibility. You may need to put up your umbrella to avoid those meatballs at any moment because we're seeing contraction, particularly in high tech. And then we're seeing kind of business as usual in, you know, uh, consumer goods and, and other sectors of the economy. There's a lot of concern, however, because those high-tech sectors have so much to do with the way the wind blows and the way the meatballs blow in our economy, especially in the U.S. So what Mike is advising here is to essentially stay with the process, be involved, don't drop out, be visible, and don't get freaked out essentially by what's by what's afoot. You don't need to um, be everything in a unicorn job description. You don't need to um, be deterred by the you know what you're seeing in the in the world around you. In you know, as he puts it, even in the best of economic climates, it's really hard to get a job. It's just one of those things that no one wants to have to have to be in, involved in. Yeah. I love that uh, sort of don't be deterred by unicorn job descriptions. And I think what he's referring to here is that 
some of the cri the criteria or qualifications that are listed in a lot of these job descriptions are kind of hard to to meet. I mean, you know, more than 10 years in the sustainability, you know, well, I mean, you have 10 years, I certainly do. And, and fortunately, neither, neither of us is looking for a job, but, <laughs> but, uh, but not that many people have 10 years experience. And, um, and I think that's kind of challenging, and it probably, you know, deters some people. But I, I do think also, this, uh, you know, defining your personal sustainability story and superpower. And now you may not have a personal sustainability story so that because you may be you know, new to this, but I think the superpower thing is pretty interesting because, and that's what I tell a lot of people who come to me and say, how do I get a job? What, what do I need to do? What tickets do I need to punch or things study or cert certifications and all that? And I, and I think the first thing is don't study sustainability. I mean, you can take classes on it and learn a little bit about it, but don't major in that. Go major in finance or marketing or HR or strategy or, or something else, supply chain, procurement, and learn it. And then, you know, bring your green gene to that job. And, and I think that's, you know, really as important these days, particularly as sustainability fans out into the various functions and job uh, business units of, of companies. I so agree. And I often lean back on the fact that I come from the world of architecture and my master's degree is in sustainable design. That would not have obviously qualified me to be in the position I'm in now at GreenBiz. And yet it's something that I use as a foundation for my thinking. And it's really helpful to have something other than the theory of sustainability proper to, um, to, to sort of thrive on. Yeah. And my journalism degree is similarly, you know, not about sustainability, but somehow got, somehow <laughs> got directed there. It was another story, but um, well, let's move on to, to a story. And, and this is one that uh, I, I near and dear to me because I wrote it. <laughs> about insurance. And it's really near and dear to me because, uh, as I say in the beginning here, uh, uh, my wife and I got notified uh, recently that um, our home insurance is, uh, policy is being canceled by, in this case, Kemper, um, because they're stopping uh, issuing uh, homeowners insurance in my Oakland, California neighborhood region. I don't really know the whole city. Uh, most of the state is having problems now, not just by the way with homeowners insurance, but with auto insurance too. It's really challenging that a lot of companies are dropping out, and here and in Florida, um, and and in a number of other states, as uh, as climate change is starting to uh, be more evident in the form of you know floods and hurricanes, heat waves, wildfires, and the like. Um, but what I think that got me to here is well, what are the implications for business? Um, you know, what are the implications for companies? If homeowners can't get insurance because of wildfire or flooding risk, what about the companies that live in those and work, reside in those same neighborhoods or have facilities, or just the employees of those companies who, who can no longer get insurance um, and are all of a sudden hanging out there? And, and uh, you know, what happens there? So I think this is a... Um, I, I, I looked it up. My first piece on insurance and climate change goes back to 2006. So this is a topic I've been I've been really interested in for a long time. But, you know, this month it kind of got personal. Yeah. So what as an Oakland homeowner will you actually do? Do you know? 
Uh, TBD, I, I have, uh, there is one particular uh, uh, association that uh, has uh, three letters, uh, all of the same letter at the very beginning of the alphabet, um, no, uh, that are looking, talking to about uh, getting it. The rates are much higher uh, than we're paying now. I assume that would be the case. But, you know, some of the other ones, um, you know, State Farm has pulled out of California. Allstate has. I went on the Progressive website, Progressive Insurance website, and went through an entire questionnaire about, you know, everything in my life, it seems, you know, uh, and uh, only to come up with the answer is, I'm sorry, we're not offering insurance in your area. And and I think that's the case for a lot of them. So one of the interesting things in 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 Florida and and Colorado and some other states is there's there are these insurance pools uh, sort of state run insurers that consider the uh, insurer of last resort for those of us who can't get insurance elsewhere but even those are are starting to be affected the one in Florida uh, is uh, you know double digit rate increases and and, and it's, they're going to bump up against their uh, uh, the budgets that they have to do these things. And so I don't know exactly where this is going to go. I have fortunately uh, till uh, another four or five months to figure it out. Um, so it's, it, it's a little unnerving. Uh, I, I, for some reason, am not panicky. I believe there will be some, something out there uh, to cover our house, but um, yeah, I think this is really the tip of the spear. When State Farm, which as you've mentioned, announced last month that it would stop selling coverage to homeowners. And State Farm is the largest homeowners insurance company in California. Uh, I understand from a New York Times piece I read about it. A friend of GreenBiz, Molly Wood, brought up on LinkedIn the topic of what she called disaster capitalism. And so this idea that the insurance industry is going to respond to the very real pressure that the climate crisis presents by essentially finding ways to cash in and that the uh, the idea maybe of these companies saying we're not insuring California anymore is to essentially pressure regulators to allow them to raise rates. So I think you're right to bring up the, the question of what happens to businesses that might also have trouble being insured. I'm also interested in what happens to businesses that are actually providing insurance and how this gambit might play out. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that at the end of this piece that it's not all bad news for insurers, that there are some products that are particularly aimed at commercial customers uh, that help them mitigate climate risks or, or seize the moment. Uh, Zurich, uh, the big Zurich, Zurich insurance group has uh, something called Zurich Resilient Solutions, which is uh, uh, offering, uh, helping measure physical climate risk and emissions, helping companies establish a strategy to reduce them. Um, so they're finding ways to to make money here. And then Chubb, uh, another big insurance company, announced the launch of a global climate business unit focusing on uh, climate tech and, and, and renewable energy and a number of other things. So yeah, never let a good crisis uh, go to waste. But let's move over to a eh, somewhat happier story, I guess. Um, that uh, our colleague uh, Leah Garden, climate tech reporter here at GreenBiz, wrote about her travels uh, currently in Europe for three weeks, uh, summer vacation, not really, summer hard work actually, in uh, London, Brussels, and Amsterdam, uh, looking at attending some events and, and talking to a lot of uh, climate tech companies and incubators 
Um, and she wrote a piece about Amsterdam, uh, which has committed to being a, a circular uh, city or having a 100% circular economy by the middle of this uh, century. Um, and yeah, it just uh, was an interesting uh, for me because I happened to overlap with her uh, last week when I was in Amsterdam for a board meeting of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute and attended a, a couple of the things that she writes about. But it's 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 so inspiring to see what's going on there and how this uh, this city and, and really the, the small but mighty country that it, it exists in is really embracing the circular economy. I love that she points out that accelerators are a really good bellwether for the trajectory of startups. And so I was reading this story with interest in terms of what are the types of startups that uh, an accelerator like Amsterdam Circular is betting on in this market. I was very excited about the electric bike charging company where the kickstand becomes the um becomes the charging mechanism. You Inductive charge. Isn't that cool? Just like a kickstand. I mean, duh. But who oh, ever thought of that before? I this? love it. I was less excited about human material loop, which <laughs> integrates human hair into textile production. Um, so Joel, one of the- Wait, 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 wait. You got you to give the statistic that she offers there because I know it's just sort of kind of mind-blowing. So Leah highlights in this story that 62 million tons of human hair are Let's just emphasize that. 62 million tons 62 of million human tons hair. of human hair are incinerated <laughs> annually in Europe. So just, you know, just putting that, you know, that's a good that's a good cocktail party fact for your weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but the human material loop is actually trying to prevent that by um, by extracting fibers from human hair to create industrial textiles. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, a more of a molecular recycling play than a literal weaving of human hair into your next shirt or blanket. Yeah, a hair shirt or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, but this is cool stuff. And and I I, I visited uh, this. Um, circular economy uh, startup called Amsterdam Circular, the accelerator that she writes about. We were there together. And 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 first of all, it, it the facility itself is truly amazing. It's this complex. It's a former marine base. Who knew that, Amst that Netherlands had a Marines, but they did or do or did. No, they still do. It's it, it's being moved, but it's being as as is true here in the United States with a lot of former military bases are being taken over by Things like startups and hubs and, and accelerators. There's one here in Alameda, California, the former Alameda Naval Air Station. It's got a lot of climate tech startups. Um, so it was just a really cool facility in the way they're doing it, uh, uh, multiple buildings and so many services. But also just uh, the breadth of, oh, and, and this is all really run by this government of the city of Amsterdam. They've, they've, uh, fund this and, and start off and then they get some uh, venture capital to help back it. Uh, I, I just, it, it's hard to visit Amsterdam and not be impressed with, with the city overall as it relates to sustainability and circularity. Um, and, and I, I love that uh, Leah has been there and, and reporting back to, to all of us uh, what's going on and what we all might be looking forward to in the future. Um, tons of hair notwithstanding.
In late 2021, the Asian Development Bank announced the creation of two multi-billion dollar funds meant to help accelerate the retirement or repurposing of coal plants in Indonesia and the Philippines, two countries that are heavily dependent on this energy source. The plan is called the Energy Transition Mechanism. So what has happened since that initial announcement? What can other countries learn about the mechanism? And how can corporations and the private sector participate? Joining me to address those and other questions is David Elzinga, Principal Energy Specialist for Climate Change with the Asian Development Bank. David, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, Heather. Pleasure to be here. So give me a brief description, definition, if you will, of the energy transition mechanism and what was the inspiration for its creation? Thanks, Heather. At the ADB, we often say the battle against climate change will be won or lost in Asia and the Pacific. So if emissions from existing fossil fuel power plants are not addressed, the region and the world will not meet Paris Agreement targets and will not stay on track to keeping our temperatures below 1.5 degree rise. So currently, over 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions originate in Asia and the Pacific. And Southeast Asia in particular has a lot of coal-fired power plants, and many of them are young. It's estimated about 90% uh, of those built are have been done in the last 20 years. And so if we don't address these, these will not be retired for decades. And at the same time, the countries in Southeast Asia are growing much faster than the rest of the world and will need to substantially increase their power generation capacity while transitioning away from that generated by coal. So putting this all together, ETM, it, it was originated and conceived as a way of accelerating the retirement of fossil-fueled power plants, whilst at the same time bringing in funding for renewables and other clean energy sources so that we can maintain grid stability, energy security, and affordability of this, this energy in the region, which is needed for socioeconomic development, businesses, things like that that are important for every country. So lastly, Investment in renewable energy alone, it, it's not, if not sufficient uh, to meet the world's global climate goals. So actively shutting down fossil fuel energy sources uh, is the only way to go alongside that and achieve those goals. Right. Okay, so you did a great job of setting up the Southeast Asia angle. I'm just curious why those two countries in particular, you know, the Philippines and Indonesia, is that just where it's easiest to do this or where there's the most potential impact? When we look across Asia more broadly, so, so ADB has um, uh, Central Asia, which in, includes the um, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and goes all the way down to the Pacific Islands and then goes east uh, to the Philippines and west uh, to, to India, roughly speaking. The, the countries we've chosen um, in Southeast Asia have very high shares. Um, so uh, over 60% of the power generation comes from coal. When you look across other countries, some are highly um, using um, gas power. Some are highly using hydro. So we're really kind of picking on those first that have a high share of coal uh, because we think we can make the highest impact. Um, and um, they're the ones who have uh, the longest way to go on the energy transition. So it's a good place to start. Great. Great. Thank you for that. The energy transition mechanism, aka ETM. So how does it work? Give me an example of a scenario. Okay. So when we look at a, a given country, 
um, and we say, okay, it's got a high share of, of coal, um, and uh, we think there's a, an openness uh, to, to start uh, actively pursuing the energy transition. We start with a, a pre-feasibility study and a feasibility study. Um, and this allows us to engage with the government's private sector and civil, civil society to assess the country's uh, sector and develop a, a comprehensive and, and just energy transition plan. So ADB also comes up with a business and financing plan, as well as details on the valuation of uh, in initial target plants. Uh, we can start structuring uh, transactions and make investments in specific institutions or, or programs um, for the, the country to, to pilot uh, an accelerated and managed retirement of fossil-based plants. So we, we do this initial work. And then once the country has agreed on the pilot program, uh, we start working uh, on raising financial resources. And this can be done through several sources. Sometimes we have specific funds in the bank. Um, sometimes we can go to philanthropies or other organizations um, that are focused on both scaling up clean energy and, and others that are focused and, and willing to uh, support the accelerated retirement of, of fossil plants. So once the, the financing is uh, arranged, we can um, start uh, doing the transaction on the plant. Once that is, is done, the plant runs for a shortened period of time. Uh, that, that has been determined in the feasibility study. And this is usually 15 to 20 years less than the plant would have run um, without this type of intervention. So that's the, the starting point, the, the pilot phase. But so once the pilot program has, has proven feasible, uh, the program is scaled up to retire or repurpose more assets and invest in renewable power generation, storage, grid upgrades, all essential items um, for the energy transition on a, a technical and a financial level, but also on social programs that can support the people in, and um, communities transition away from coal uh, dependence. And it's, it's important to note that overall, as, as part of this, uh, we're creating a, a forum for discussion uh, research and lending, uh, and bringing the, the government and private sectors together to conduct a, a just transition away from fossil fuels. So every step of this process is about listening uh, to stakeholders from, from governments to NGOs to local communities to ensure that, above all, the transition is progressing in a way uh, that meets the energy and economic needs uh, of the communities it's impacting. Got it. Thank you. So it was announced, the plan, this, this, this idea was announced in November 2021. At least that was my indication. So what has happened so far? So tell me how the funds have been used, what, where we, we've seen it work. Okay. So, so far, um, ETM has gone through uh, steps of our, our pre-feasibility study across three countries, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines. And we're at various stages of the feasibility study in these respective countries. Uh, we've made the most progress uh, in Indonesia so far. Uh, so, um, for example, we announced um, uh, work on the refinancing of the first coal-fired power plant uh, in the country. And it's a 660-megawatt plant in West Java. It's known as, as Chirbon 1. So while the deal is still being developed, we're actually uh, getting quite close to, to completing it. 
Um, once completed, the, the power plant will be uh, taken out of service about 10 to 15 years before the end of its 40-year useful life. And that avoids about an estimated 30 million tons of GHG emissions. Um, ETM is, is continuing to identify and finalize uh, additional projects, and uh, we hope to have a, a number of other uh, potential pilot projects that, that we can announce uh, over the next year, both in Indonesia and, and potentially in uh, Philippines. Um, lastly, in, in addition to these steps, uh, we've launched a, a pre-feasibility study uh, in Kazakhstan and a, a viability study uh, in Pakistan, and we're looking at uh, other countries that, that we could extend to. Yeah, so you just addressed one of my other questions, which was how it would apply in other countries. So to ask you about that, so you're talking about feasibility studies, what do you need within a country in order to make this work? So you want to expand into other countries, what kind of policy landscape or what kind of economic conditions need to be there to make this viable? I think one of the one of the first things we we look for um, is there's a lot of coal. All right. So I kind of said that and <laughs> yeah. other other fossil fuel uses. Actually, we, we talk a lot about coal, but uh, the other one is is using diesel or, or heavy fuel oil for electricity production. This is another area where we're actually working on that um, is expensive, uh, has high climate impact and is often unreliable. So just we talk about coal a lot, but we we also more generally look at, at heavy fossil fuels uh, in addition to that. Um, the other part is it has to be um, the desire of the country. Um, these are, you know, energy has a significant impact in the, the broader uh, socio and economic development of the country. And we have to make sure that they're they're coming alongside us. Uh, we're, we're partnering with them on this. This is not us telling them what to do. This is us partnering with, with them. But the exciting part is with the... Um, decreases and uh, of cost and increases of performance of clean energy technology, this is becoming more and more viable and the way to go, regardless of where your starting point is. Have you had other development banks ask you about this, this process? I mean, have you, I'm just curious if this is something you could see other development banks emulating? Absolutely. Um, this is not something that we're looking to, to guard as, as ADB's idea. First off, uh, should mention that um, this actually wasn't our idea. Um, this came from a, a person by the name of, of Don Kanock, um, who brought this uh, idea out uh, during his work in, in the World Economic Forum. So we, we took a, what we thought was a good idea and where we could contribute. And um, we have a number of uh, development partners who are working with us already uh, on one of our uh, corporate lending structures. Uh, we're looking with uh, KFW, a German development institution, as well as AFD, a French development institution. Um, we do find that some other um, of the, the development community are less comfortable with this um, because it is working in coal and working in fossil fuels. And, and often we want to stay away from that but we're intervening in a way that's gonna accelerate our shift. So we, we've committed to this and others have as well. What role do you expect the private sector to play? You know, I'd like to rephrase that slightly if I could. What I'd rather say, what role does the private sector and civil society play? Because I think these are really two 
important stakeholders that that we haven't touched on too too much. Um, during the the research and development phase, NGOs uh, play a crucial role through every step. Um, so we really endeavor to uh, to listen and engage with many NGOs, both at the international and at the the country level. Um, and feedback, especially from the local organizations, is important as we continue to finalize uh, plant selection and, and the fund uh, financing mechanisms that we use uh, to ensure that we're, we're meeting the needs of the local communities and addressing you know, the broad level of, of concerns that they may raise. On the financing side, uh, the private sector is incredibly important um, and because the transition from... Um, fossil fuels to clean energy really is, is too expensive to be funded through governments or, or public sector alone. So what we're trying to do, ETM funds uh, will come from uh, in international financial institutions, private sector, um, uh, philanthropies, and government. So blending all these together, um, we can uh, create the, the capital that's needed uh, for the transition, uh, both to support uh, the reduction uh, of use of fossil fuels, but also the increase uh, in funding uh, for for new green infrastructure. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to put your prediction hat on, take out that crystal ball. Mm -hmm. So what impact should we expect the fund to have in the next five years? And then I'm going to ask you a longer term question in a moment. So five years out, what should we expect? In in the five-year time frame, what, what I really, really uh, want to accomplish is two things. One is to demonstrate the, the model, that, that this can work. Um, you know, I think we all want to see the new clean and green and all the good stuff go forward. Um, I want to demonstrate how we can fund uh, cleaning up the stuff or, or stop doing the stuff that we don't want to do. And it's it's unique and different because we're we're stopping doing something we often have to clean up a bit of a mess this can be difficult uh for us for for anyone to do but but difficult for us as development institutions so that's the one thing in the five year and i want to do uh, a number of real projects and demonstrate uh, emission reductions and by doing this by doing both of those I think that we can see policies start to really evolve and change to support the transition um, at, um, you know, to really start to to, to move uh, the needle on this. Mm -hmm. And what about in 10 years? In 10 years, uh, I want to be able to really uh, see that this becomes a regular part of development financing. Um, you know, I think that's something where we we see what we have done in the past that, you know, um, this type of uh, technology, if you look at a, a coal power plant, it's been used to bring a, a lot of people out of, of poverty. You know, it's provided that electricity that's needed for, for societies in general and businesses. But now we're saying, oh, the climate impacts are too large. Um, so I want to see um, at scale us making the shift uh, to clean energy and uh, cleaning up what, uh, what we've done uh, in the past that we no longer want to do. And, and see it actually uh, starting to make a real contribution to the, the global emission reductions that we need. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Heather. You just heard from David Elzinga, Principal Energy Specialist, Climate Change with the Asian Development Bank. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Dylan Siegler for co-hosting this week. Heather and I will be back next week one last time from Boston and Greenfin 23 with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft. Watch Microsoft Chief Sustainability Officer Melanie Nakagawa and other sustainability leaders exploring the latest Microsoft Cloud for sustainability innovations that can help companies prepare for reporting regulations. Learn more at aka.ms forward slash sustainable future live. And this episode is sponsored by Ecolab. When the world talks about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we don't talk about water. What if water could help you meet your climate goals? Learn more about the transformative power of water at ecolab.com forward slash water. 